Greetings and welcome to episode number three of Earth Repair Radio. This is a relationship and this is, uh, this, there's a place for people in this, uh, in the natural world to help bring things into greater biodiversity. The restoration will come about when we decide that we value ecosystems. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we've got a great show for you. We've got Dow Orion as our guest. Dow is an author. She wrote a book called Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration. Dow's also a permaculture teacher and spent many years developing the Aprovecho site in Cottage Grove, Oregon. So I'm really fortunate to be able to talk to a very knowledgeable person today. And here's my interview with Dow Orion. Hi, Dow. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really good to talk to you. It's I was just reflecting how I've, I've probably known you for about 10 years uh, when we first came to Aprovecho and you gave me and my family a tour when we were first looking to move to Oregon. So it's really great to still be friends with you and colleagues after all this time. Yeah, I remember that day. It's so great that you made it up here and you've uh, flourished in Corvallis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I've just been super impressed with your work. I've been coming back and I've been seeing what you've been doing for all these years, seeing your uh, your great site at Aprovecho develop and your farm. And um, I and I love your book. You wrote this great book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a uh, permaculture approach to ecosystem restoration. And so you are the one to answer some some tricky questions to bring some clarity about native exotic species, novel ecosystems, and I, ultimately, I want to answer the question: what What do we need to what mind frame do we need to be in about uh, plant species to carry out the massive scale restoration of the planet, the ecosystems of the planet that we need? So that's kind of the the big question I'm trying to tackle today. So um, my first question is about uh, David Holmgren, who's the co-founder of Permaculture, and he also wrote the foreword to your book. He talks about how much of the landmass of the earth is now covered by what he termed novel ecosystems. So I was wondering if you could give us a definition of what a novel ecosystem is and tell us if this is a new phenomenon. Sure. Yeah, novel ecosystems are ones that are um, functioning and kind of whole and diverse, but they're in a formulation or a uh kind of combination that is novel compared to what people usually think of as native or um, supposed to be in a particular place. So there are ecosystems that have kind of found their own stride in the midst of other changes that have happened in the ecosystem um, so that plants and animals and insects uh, have kind of reestablished new relationships based on available resources and <clears throat> available uh, conditions, prevailing conditions. Hmm. So they're basically new, all new ecosystems that did not exist 
prior to human uh, impacts on the land? Yeah, well, it's kind of an interesting and nuanced question because one of my lines of research and interest has been in the effects that people have had on landscapes over the course of history. And I do feel like just the human species in general has been really good at manipulating landscapes and tailoring them to meet their needs, whether that's through hunting, lighting fires, um, kind of stimulating the growth of certain plants instead of others, clearing ground um, for agriculture, etc. Um, all of those actions change ecosystems. And the scale that we're kind of looking at these changes happening now is much more accelerated, of course, and there's been a lot more mixing of species that have originated on different continents, etc. Um, and so that's kind of where the root of the concern with invasive species today comes from, um, is the kind of scale and scope of the changes in ecosystems. But I would say that well, and from a geological perspective, ecosystems have been changing for millions, billions of years, really. Um, so it's also interesting to kind of step back a little bit and kind of consider that, you know, 50 million years ago in Oregon, there were cashews and cinnamon growing, you know, wow. in the John Day uh, wilderness. Huh. So different ecosystem than what's there today. Right. Uh, and to think about how that changed and what that looked like at the time of that change or, you know, over the course of millennia when those changes were happening is a really interesting line of inquiry as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And why are, why are people so, uh, so charged right now by invasive species? Well, I think, People see and feel that ecosystems are being degraded. And I think that invasive species, in a way, are a very visible representation of that. And people identify them as the problem and say, oh, well, if we can just get rid of them, then ecosystems will be better. Native species can thrive again and everything will just be okay, right? Nice. <laughs> uh, however, when you kind of peel back the layers of what's going on in terms of really understanding ecosystem functionality, it's not that easy. And plants or animals making their way in the world isn't necessarily problematic. I'd like to think of it more as uh, representative of underlying processes. And if we want to change species combinations, we need to address the underlying processes at work that is making it possible for them to thrive there. Um, for example, I was just talking to a fisheries biologist just who works just south of me down in the Umpqua River uh, watershed, and he was saying that in that area where there are still beavers, which is the Oregon state animal, um, most of them have been trapped out throughout Oregon, um, where there are still beavers in the Umpqua watershed, there are no Himalayan blackberries. Huh. Um, and for those, who, for those who don't know, I would just say, for those who don't know, Himalayan blackberries are one of the most uh, dominant, what we think of as invasive species in Oregon. 
Yeah, and especially along riparian areas, people are really concerned about their proliferation along the banks of creeks and rivers, and they're kind of the the targets for um, removal. And it's interesting to think of it in terms of, well, maybe this has to do with hydrologic uh, phenomenon that, you know, goes back to the lack of uh, beavers in our ecosystems and what kinds of ecological effects and benefits uh, they were having on those ecosystems. And, you know, if we are to restore native flora to the riparian areas along our creeks, which I think that we should should be doing, I'm not necessarily excited about seeing creeks, you know, just covered with blackberries. Um, we really need to be looking at the underlying process at work that makes it possible for blackberries to grow and also makes it less probable that native species will grow. There's kind of a, there's two sides to that story. It's not just that the blackberries are really good at growing, it's that native species aren't necessarily being recruited um, based on the prevailing conditions. Right. So basically you're saying everybody's mad at the Himalayan blackberries and saying we need to eradicate the blackberries, yet when we bring back the beaver, it changes the entire ecological conditions and then the blackberries don't even uh, reproduce under those conditions. Yeah, they don't like to be flooded. They don't like water. Um, And so, you know, what this guy was saying is that where beavers have been able to establish dams on like in succession down a a creek bed, there's just no way for blackberries to get a foothold. Instead, there's flood tolerant species like willow and cottonwood that um, are thriving in those areas. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. So it seems like we need this massive scale of restoration and rehabilitation if we're going to stabilize the biosphere for continued habitation of the earth by our descendants, right? We have degraded ecosystems all over the planet. We have a lot of um, changing weather patterns, um, increased fires, and in a lot of ways, things are thrown into uh, uh, more extreme conditions. So what is the perspective do you think that we should have regarding native, exotic, and invasive species in order to carry out this restoration? And what are we restoring to? Yeah, that is, those are really good questions. And I think maybe the last one is where I'll start, is thinking about the whole concept of restoration. It's largely based on somewhat subjective understanding of restoring landscapes to how they were pre-European contact, at least um, in North America and elsewhere um, that was that have been colonized by Europeans. That's kind of the, the framework for the restoration ideology. And so there's some dates that people generally work with. I think um, in California and Oregon, people are generally looking at around 1750 as the, the model date timeframe to which we're trying to recreate ecosystems from that time. Um, and there's a couple interesting issues with that. Um, first of all, that 
we don't necessarily know everything about what those ecosystems were like at that time. Also that many of those ecosystems that we're talking about were actually being managed by people, by indigenous people particularly, and had the type of characteristics and species assemblages that they did because people were living there and using those plants. Um, so those are two really big kind of concepts embedded in restoration um, that I think need to be brought out more. Um, did, did you have a question? Or? Well, no, I was just the, the whole 1750. That's just what you, what people have deduced seems to be some sort of idealized, uh, idealized ecological conditions. People are trying to are get back to, I mean, where did, where did that 1750 date come from? Well, it's, it's kind of like, um, I mean, it, it is really random and it's basically like the time, a general time frame before there was, at least in the West, a lot of, um, development and, um, you know, massive ecological change. Like if you think about by the time the 1840s rolled around in California and gold was discovered, there were major changes going on in the hydrology, um, in the late 1700s and early 1800s in Oregon, people were already, uh, trappers were already moving into um, the, the ecosystems in this area and trapping beaver and trapping otters and trapping wolves and sending their furs back to the East Coast and to Europe. So those types of things happening a little bit later than 1750 right. um, did have ecological effects. And I think that, you know, as industrialization started to kind of ramp up after that time, we started to see, you know, um, more and more changes happening. So I think that time frame just seems like, oh, well, that was that was when it was good. Um, yeah, it was basically pre-European colonization of the of the American West. Yes, yes. And so that is just such a loaded concept, I think. Um, but that's what people are really looking towards. And I think that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, the idea that we could restore ecosystems back to something that may have existed 250 years ago and have all of the major types of changes that, you know, colonization and industrialism, capitalism has engendered on this landscape, I think is, um, you know, it's not realistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you feel like trying to bring it back to this pre-European colonization, does does that even recognize the fact that Native Americans uh, were um, were really interacting intensively with the landscape using fire uh, in a large part? I mean, how, you know, restoring back to these pre, you know, 1750 landscapes, well, if you don't have Native American land management, then you have a major missing piece, don't you? Yeah, and that is something that, you know, when I got really interested in this, when I was working um, for the county, the Lane County um, Public Works Department here, on a restoration project, my uh, worldview is really informed by Kat Anderson's work and Tending the Wild and uh, Nancy Turner's work um, with her. She has a couple books. One of them's called Keeping It Living. That's really bringing forward the idea that you know these 
landscapes, native plant and animal based landscapes are cultural creations. Um, <clears throat> the idea that we can just kind of put a mix of seeds together that are native, considered native and put them out on the, the land and expect them to just uh, thrive because they're considered native um, is missing a huge piece. And from the work that I've done with a couple of different tribes in this area, a lot of um, indigenous people feel like they are often left out of the conversation in restoration and that their perspective on, well, you know, these, these plants aren't just wildflowers. These are important pieces of um, culture and they have stories associated with them and, um, you know, management practices, many of which have been lost or prohibited. In Oregon, um, indigenous burning, which was a major management strategy for the oak savanna ecosystem in the Willamette Valley and beyond, uh, was outlawed in 1859, which mm. was a year after Oregon gained statehood. And, uh, you know, so those kinds of phenomena, like thinking about, okay, well, the, the major land management practice that formed this oak savanna ecosystem was outlawed about 160, 170 years ago now. In terms of ecological succession and how ecosystems, we can expect that they change over time, you can kind of see that some of what uh, is happening on the ground now has to do with um, the lack of that type of management. And, you know, that type of management in many places was kind of replaced with grazing of European livestock, cattle, sheep, and pigs, all of those introductions had other effects on the soil, on the plant assemblages. And so kind of weaving all of those pieces together is a really important part of uh, identifying, I think, how to proceed with restoration and really thinking about what it is that we're moving towards. Because I love native plants. I plant them. I tend them, you know, I eat many of them. Mm -hmm. We have a big patch of camas, which is a native um, edible lily growing on our property that we've been working to remove invasive species from, but not just so that it's there, but so that we're, we're actually trying to form more of a relationship with that plant and eat it. Um, Luther Burbank actually believe that camas was going to supplant the potato hmm. um, because it's much higher in calcium and potassium. Um, it's a very nutrient-dense crop, and it's a perennial. Um, and he's a kind of famous plant breeder, so he was actually working on breeding it out. That was one of his projects. But it's just interesting to kind of think about, you know, using these plants and through their use – bringing their populations into a greater state of health and what those kind of uh, land tending actions look like. Right. There's a lot, a lot there. <laughs> yeah. Well, back to the, the first part of the, the question is what, what is the perspective you think that we should have 
regarding native, exotic, and invasive species? You know, what what is kind of the the new paradigm of thought that we should be uh, partaking in if we are going to really do the scale of work that we need to do to uh, restore degraded landscapes and and work with this new novel ecosystem uh, phenomenon, really, that's that's uh, inhabiting so much of our landscape? I think we should really um, try to be as objective as possible when looking at invasive species in particular and, and really look at the characteristics of the plant or animal itself and, and the characteristics of the ecosystems where they're thriving. And I think that just, um, kind of taking a step back and, you know, in, in a permaculture design class, you often start out, uh, doing like a needs and yields assessment. Um, if you can kind of look at a plant and say, okay, well, this is what it needs. This is what it's doing in the landscape. This is potentially why it's here at this particular time in an ecosystem. And this is what it's yielding. Um, Maybe it's providing uh, nectar for pollinators. Maybe it's providing nesting habitat. Maybe it's um, stopping the flow of sediment. Maybe it's accumulating heavy metals. Um, And there's actually a lot of primary research on invasive species that kind of answers a lot of these questions that might not be immediately obvious. Um, But it's often not kind of couched in terms of like, well, maybe these things are actually doing something beneficial for the ecosystem. Um, And I think that we can start to look at these plants in a different way. And, and there's also animals too. Um, And rather than seeing them as bad actors or malevolent, um, really look at them as symptoms of a larger, uh, larger issue going on in the ecosystem and think about how we can work on those larger issues to address, you know, the invasion process that's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, you gave one example of the, the issue of Himalayan blackberry on the banks of rivers and how the larger issue was the absence of the beaver or keystone species. I'm curious if you have any other examples uh, on the top of your mind that would illustrate that. Well, um, one that I was thinking of when I was answering the question was zebra mussels, um, which are an invasive mussel. So it's like a little mollusk um, that's growing all throughout, um, well, in some of the the Great Lakes areas. Um, And there's a big concern about these mollusks. And... But some of the primary research on them has shown that they accumulate in their tissue, so in the actual meat of the the muscle, um, that people have found lead, mercury, cadmium, so heavy metals. They've also found um, PCBs, uh, an antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, so there's all of these things that are what if you think about it that's being accumulated in these tissues but on a bigger picture these are things that we're putting into our water Mm. Um, and 
if you look at from like a, a longer term perspective and think about what's going to happen to these muscles that are full of all of these poisons, essentially, um, they are, as they die, they're going to be burying those materials, taking them out of solution, taking them out of the living uh, kind of active aquatic ecosystem and burying them in the sediment, um, which is where they were originally, right? Like all these heavy metals were mined right. out of sediment somewhere. Right. Um, and thinking about things like that yeah. really makes me feel like, you know, because we're continually pouring these things into our ecosystems and um, that's kind of our, on a larger scale, kind of the mainstream operating model, um, what do we expect is going to thrive in that right. type of environment? Um, should we be surprised that there's a muscle um, that's going to, that's kind of taking over and um, making, you know, one of the reasons people don't like it is because it clogs uh, the pipes, but factories who are along that are placed along the Great Lakes use to dump their effluent or take fresh water in. And so people have to go in and scuba gear and scrape these muscles off of the intake pipes. Um, so they, they interfere with kind of business as usual. So they're, they're considered, you know, one of the top 10 invasive species. Um, However, you know, I would I would look forward to a time when eventually that water becomes clean enough to where other species can start to thrive again in that ecosystem, which was once incredibly diverse. And um, there, I think I think there were close to forty different species of native mussel, native freshwater mussel in the Great Lakes ecosystem. Um, Twenty three of them are extinct now. Wow. Um, not due to the zebra mussel, but due to industrial processes and overharvesting. Right. So, um, <laughs> it's it's actually yeah. absurd if you think yeah, about it, it's right? <laughs> it's it's absurd that basically industrial pollutants killed off twenty three native species, and there's this one exotic species that actually takes the industrial pollutants out of the water and buries it back in the ground, and yet it's one of the top ten uh, uh, most hated exotic species in this country. Um, what what lengths are are they going to eradicate the zebra mussel? <laughs> there. I, I think people have done a lot of different experiments with various um, substances that they can pour on them. Bleach um, is one. There's different molluscicides that people use um, depending on the context. It doesn't work, you know, in larger uh, kind of more open water situations. So, yeah, there's basically trying to poison them, scrape them off. Right. Um, and they, are, you know, they do from like a tourism perspective, they're sharp and they, they, um, they make it so that people have to wear water shoes. This is, these are some of the yeah. things that I read and researching them. You can't just go to the beach anymore and go swimming because there's all of these sharp shells, um, lining the, the bottom of the, 
the beach there underwater. Well, and there's also PCBs and heavy metals and all the things <laughs> that the zebra mussels are are yeah. uh, absorbing, right? So, so, which one should we be more concerned about? <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting, and you know, it's some of the things I wanted to get to today was to start to uncover some of the really dysfunctional ways that we're looking at um, the whole ecosystem and the invasive and exotic species and um, to get some clarity about what what's the right way or what's what's a helpful way to view this whole situation. So um, now Masanobu Fukuoka is well-known, at least in the permaculture and regenerative agriculture circles, is this Japanese natural farmer. He was also a poet and a really profound guy and has um, a, a number of books that he's written. And <clears throat> in one of the books that um, came out recently, it was translated by our friend Larry Korn. It's called Sowing Seeds in the Desert. And uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, he gives his strategy for restoring damaged desert landscapes. And I'm going to quote from the book. He says, without question, they were native or non-native. I would mix the seeds of all plants, forest trees, fruit trees, perennials, vegetables, grasses, and legumes, as well as ferns, mosses, and lichens, and sow them all at once across the desert. So he basically was advocating creating seed balls, which are these balls of mud that have packed with seeds embedded in them, and dropping them out of airplanes across degraded desert landscapes all over the planet. And he thought that this would be the quickest fix to restoring those lands. Um, in the last couple of podcasts, I talked to uh, Ramis Kent, who works a lot in Somalia and Tunisia and Yemen and a lot of um, kind of widespread degraded desert landscapes. And then I talked to Neil Spackman in Saudi Arabia. So it got me thinking about this. And I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective, just gathering all the seed you can from every different ecosystem and types and broadcasting them out of an airplane into the desert. I mean, how do, how do you feel that fits in your worldview of native and non-native species? And, you know, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think that that has a lot of merit that concept because you know in some of these landscapes um there's not a lot that will survive there and in fact you know the stuff that may be considered native might be so outside of its um kind of survival zone given current conditions and maybe decreased rainfall or um increased or decreased soil ph or increased salinity um, that maybe things from other continents or other types of ecosystems um, might be might find that there we might find that there's just the right thing um, that we don't know about yet. And so, making these kinds of mixes um, to some extent, you know, in the in the desert environment, um, finding something that's rampant. <laughs> And that can grow rampantly and start, um, you know, drawing carbon down into the soil through the process of decomposition and creating the likelihood for more uh, habitat and ecological interactions in terms of bringing in pollinators 
um, maybe starting to create more moisture in the soil to stimulate uh, fungi and other types of um, microorganismal relationships in the soil. Um, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about um, and quickly, you know, in terms of stabilizing um, really habitat loss and really loss of functional ecosystems that, you know, is becoming a lot more apparent, I think, in desert ecosystems. Um, they're more brittle, they're more fragile. And yeah, I, I read that book a few years ago and was definitely intrigued by his assertion that, you know, we should just be out there planting, seeing what does well. I know that in other contexts, um, there are people in North America who are uh, actively propagating species of plants that were present in their area the last time uh, temperatures on the planet were four to six degrees Celsius hotter. Hmm. So in the, in the Miocene era there, you know, the planet was a lot hotter. There were alligators hanging out in the, off the coast of Greenland. Huh. Um, and this one guy, Oliver Kelhammer, he works uh, part of the year up in Cortez Island. And there's a whole um, kind of sanctuary there of tree species that existed on Cortez Island during that time that he's been propagating in the, you know, hopefully unlikely event that um, the planet heats up to that point, there will be a, a, a seed bank of trees and other perennials ready to go that can be spread around um, the rest of the area um, and hopefully serve as kind of repositories for genetics for the new novel ecosystems. Right. Um, and I think when we think about it on that scale, like maybe we're going towards a, uh, a time of really rapid temperature increases and complete climate destabilization. Um, I think, you know, all, all ideas uh, should be considered, even if people are still concerned about you know, introducing species to areas that they've never been before. Um, some of the research that I did in the course of writing my book, um, I was looking at climate change predictions for different parts of North America. Um, one study that I found from the U.S. Forest Service was looking at uh, ecosystems west of the Rocky Mountains and kind of plugging in these projections for temperature increases and the associated changes in rainfall and snowpack and stuff like that. And basically, um, they, the researchers in this study found that they could predict um, 53% of future ecosystems based on the four to six degree Celsius rise, what these uh, communities could look like, but 47% of the land area west of the Rockies, they were basically like, well, we have no idea what's huh. going to survive there. Um, if any of the plants from the current plant communities will even live there, 
we can't, we can't say. Wow. Um, so that was sobering <laughs> to me. Yeah. Um, and I think to some extent people involved in permaculture or land stewardship should really be thinking about how we can be uh, continuing to foster life um, wherever we are and really maybe free ourselves a little bit from the constraints of whether something's native or non-native because what we're looking at is um, potentially very serious and we're going to need to be using all the tools we have available. And at this point, you know, we can access plants um, from around the world and experiment with them and see how they do. I know that I grow stuff from all over the world and, you know, I lose some things. Some things are doing really well. Um, I'm not necessarily planting them out on a wide scale yet, but I, um, that could be a possibility over the course of the next several years as I see how different things do. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really wondering where you draw the line. I mean, I, I know that one of the critiques of permaculture, especially from native plants people, is that we, ha- you know, will potentially bring in exotic invasive species that will run rampant and will actually, you know, take over native ecosystems. You're presenting this whole other perspective of, well, in terms of climate change, will native ecosystems even be able to survive in their current locations, giving rising temperatures and other weather extremes that we're having and that we're projected to have. So where do you draw the line? I mean, do you have some boundaries about introducing species or do you have some sort of guidelines? Well, um, you know, I should say that on my own property, I manage invasive species. I cut Himalayan blackberry and, and dig it out in places that, you know, it's not appropriate in my context. And, you know, I'm not necessarily just, spreading it around um just because i think that it's an interesting plan right. um i think that i think fundamentally i think one of the changes that should happen is that and what i hope is that people uh, of all stripes kind of come to more of a sense of how they can be active in terms of land stewardship um whether that is just in their, um, you know, urban lot or whether that means like participating and managing a, a local park where they spend a lot of time so that that park can decrease its reliance on, you know, chemical management. Um, I think that that is a shift that has to happen because right now I think, you know, and, and Bill Mollison has that, uh, famous quote where we have to start stop thinking of ourselves as consumers and start thinking of ourselves as producers. Um, because right now I think the kind of mainstream relationship with land is that it's just something that, you know, you go take a walk in the park and you go home, you go to the store and buy your food. Um, there's not a lot of integration in terms of how we can actually make positive um, change in landscapes or even how, you know, even our day-to-day lives might be affecting the ecosystems around us. There's not a lot of kind of whole systems analysis built into the way that we generally think about 
our lives today, right. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so changing on that level, I think, is first. And I think when you start to maybe just deepen your relationship with the natural world, you can see that, um, or maybe, I guess, releasing the fear about plants taking over because things don't really take over unless they're unmanaged. <laughs> and, right. you know, if we can create, free up some time and space and just, yeah, our way of being really into one that is active in maintaining a particular space because we're uh, growing food there, because we're obtaining medicinal plants there or um, materials for our daily lives, like, you know, for basket making or, you know, rope making. Um, how would that change our relationship to, you know, what what we see as good or necessary in a, in an ecosystem compared to what we have now, which is, you know, one of, one of my critiques of the restoration world view at this point is that, you know, we go and we restore these particular areas. Maybe it's a hundred acre uh, prairie site or something like that. But meanwhile, there's like hundreds of millions of acres of monoculture agriculture that we continually uh, support through buying buying the products that come out of it. Right. Um, and so that's what really needs to shift. You know, the restoration will come about when we decide that we value ecosystems. Um, so much that, you know, we're going to participate in their recreation and re revisualization, you know, as, um, things continue to change. Yeah. It's really interesting because like we were talking before how, uh, the 1750 version of the American West, uh, how that represents a time when actually the ecosystems were under large scale management, by indigenous people. And so we may have an image of the hands-off native ecosystem that we want to restore towards that might not actually exist. Yeah. And that is um, a huge issue in the environmental movement. I did quite a bit of reading on um, John Muir's writings when I was um, writing my book. And, you know, he's definitely celebrated in the environmental movement and, you know, the Sierra club is, I can, I think founded based on some of his ideology. Um, but you know, when he, he totally wrote off native people in all of his writings, he was mm. like, Hey, um, you know, these people don't really matter. I'm out here in this wilderness experiencing God or, you know, he was having this kind of spiritual um, experience. But, you know, the context in which he was operating was one where the United States Cavalry had come in and forcibly removed the, the Native people from Yosemite where he was, you know, out hiking 20 years before he showed up. Hmm. And so 
everything that he was seeing was kind of like a feral garden of the people who lived there for thousands of years. And um, so, but that's not really talked about in, you know, in the Sierra club or um, when you talk about like Henry Thoreau and I don't, I mean, there's so many layers to this um, kind of wilderness ideology or the idea of pristine nature that um, I think Western culture especially really needs to uh, transcend and think about in a different way. So, Um, I mean, do you feel like there's a point to to restoring something to what we consider a native ecosystem circa 1750? I mean, do you feel like that has any relevance or validity in this day and age? I think it does, but I would really like to see more um, of an integration of the people element into it. And just last year, I believe, um, in uh, like the West Eugene Wetlands, which is a kind of big nature conservancy restoration site near where I live, they just started reintroducing fire to that to the management regime of that um, grassland. And I was like, oh, yes, finally, you know, um, after 150 years of not being burned, um, they're starting to see that reintroducing that particular form of management is actually benefiting the native species. And, you know, from a European kind of agriculturalist perspective fire has been something that is um you know scary or the seen as something we want to reduce or mitigate but you know many of the plants around here do better with some type of disturbance of that nature so and some are even fire um determined in terms of they only germinate with fire so I think, you know, reconnecting with um, that type of management and thinking about how it can be reasonably practiced in our current setting, you know, acknowledging that, you know, with private property boundaries and things like that, it's not going to be possible everywhere. But um, you can't really take restoration in the process in isolation from the larger context of, uh, you know, historical, social, and ecological changes. And um, so, yeah, I'd I'd like to see projects that are more integrated. And I think that that's starting to happen. I know that um, I've been in touch with some people who are working in um, Northern California around the Santa Cruz area where they're just starting to work with tribal members in that area on managing the Oak Savannas. They just did a prescribed burn at the Pinnacles National Monument, which is, you know, part of the tribe of that area, historical, the place where they lived, but they no longer live there, but they're being invited back to manage the native plant assemblages there. Mm. Um, so there's some unique kind of relationships that are just starting to emerge, which are really, I think, hopeful. Yeah. 
Well, now, are there some species that you just do not like? I, I guess I keep thinking about English ivy. You know, English ivy is the in in where I live in my yard here. That is my nemesis. It's just creeping in from this back fence where it's really established. And um, I look and I see it. Literally, I drive by on, on the road and I see it taking taking down trees, basically. And so, I mean, are there species that you just just seem like they're just so rampant that they really are this these demons that are wrecking ecosystems? I mean, can you think of examples? Well, I mean, ivy is probably the one that is the most annoying to me as well. I have I have a nice patch of it on my property. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, I found that when I have the time to just cut it back and, you know, I take my weed whacker to it, um, it does a it's not that much of a, an issue. And, um, I also, when I let it go to flower, uh, my bees are all over it. Yeah. Um, and it's often flowering in like November. Right. Yeah. I saw that it was flowering at a time when nothing else was flowering. Yeah. yeah. So that's been interesting to observe. Um, again, you know, I know that it's a big issue, um, often in like, urban suburban developments where it's escaped as kind of a landscaping element. And so larger scale management isn't as much of a, an option in those areas. Um, but I think, and I know like in, in Portland, there's concerns that it's coming down like from uh, the urban development and encroaching into various parks but and it has taken out native species and especially the ground cover species like organ grape and salal one thing i would think about though like in that context in a, in a park like context is um how are we actively managing or using those spaces to make sure that ivy isn't coming in there are we valuing those faces in a way that makes it so a weed like Ivy um, is, doesn't become rampant because there is this um, kind of perspective that we need these spaces for maybe something else besides recreation. And, you know, it's, so it's interesting to me like to go to like forest park in Portland and there's a city right there of, you know, what, over over a million people, probably a million and a half in the greater Portland area, that's a lot of uh, potential work energy. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, if, if the perspective was a third, even if a third of those people were interested in actively managing Forest Park, um, Ivy wouldn't be an issue. Instead, there would be different questions of how do we you know, ensure continuous harvest that there is an over harvesting of organ grape or whatever it might be. Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, I think about it from kind of a, a bigger picture perspective and the hope that we can kind of transform our relationship to land a little bit as we think about some of these issues, because they are vexing. I know I've talked to people in, like the parks department in Eugene and in Portland. And 
like in Eugene, there are seven people employed by the parks department. Um, and they manage, I think like 2,500 acres parkland. And that's a huge amount of work, uh, for seven people. But again, we, there's the city there of, you know, 150,000 people or so. Um, so how can we kind of incentivize or just create more of an awareness of the fact that people can be interacting with these spaces in different ways than maybe we've been taught is, is normal or necessary for the health of the land. Um, what would that look like? Right. Yeah. It seems like one of your solutions to, uh, rampant undesirable species is just more human interaction with nature. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that's really, I think, uh, I developed that sense after doing some pretty close study of, like, Cat Anderson's work and really thinking about, like, if we are to change this kind of wilderness ideology of the hands-off approach and just expecting nature to just be there and that these plants will just kind of continue on in perpetuity um, while we go about our lives. And really, instead, think of this is a relationship, and this is uh, this. There's a place for people in this, uh, in the natural world, to um, help bring things into greater biodiversity. There's actually a really um, moving quote in Cat Anderson's book, "Tending the Wild," where um, uh, a Miwok elder from the Sierra Nevada of California was talking to her and saying, you know, these people, these white people, they're, they came here and they're not managing the land and all the land is just, all the animals are going away and, um, the land's just going back to wilderness. It's all brush. You know, there's, and he, he's saying wilderness as a bad thing Hmm. and like this kind of overgrown, untended, uh, landscape where, you know, people, people are, are absent and that relationship and all of those layers of relationships with plants and animals and all of that is just gone. It's disappeared. And that's sad, you know, but it's, it's such a different mindset um, than at least the one I was brought up in. And so that's just been really compelling to me to, to think about. Well, you know, in these podcast interviews, I, I keep coming back to the same theme, and that's that really the solutions are that we need to change our perspective fundamentally on so many different things. And you're just really providing a, a really insightful perspective change um, on how, you know, we, we view our basic relationship with the land. And I, I wonder if you have any insight on how how do we get people connected to the land i mean how do how do people change their perception of separateness um to one of involvement with the management of our landscapes and our ecosystems well that's that's a really good question (laughs) i don't know the answer either (laughs) um i feel like you know i've had so many really interesting conversations and discussions with people since writing this book and doing 
you know, lots of presentations and things. And I, I just think that maybe as a, you know, a civilization at this point, we're kind of just at the beginning phase of really saying like, wow, well, maybe what we've been doing hasn't worked out that well. And how can we think about this differently? I know that there's so many people that are working on different facets of this. And I think, you know, it's kind of an emerging, emerging discussion, I would say. And I don't feel like I have answers, but I feel like, you know, just pointing, pointing out the fact that, you know, one, one thing that I thought about during this, this writing of um, my book is like, like the going up to into the Cascades and here just east of where I live and picking huckleberries and um, huckleberries are a really amazing source of vitamin C. Um, What if instead of thinking of going to the store and buying orange juice from Florida, which, you know, essentially represents the destruction of an intact native plant ecosystem to create a monoculture, to create oranges. Um, What if instead of doing that, we turned our attention to managing and maintaining huckleberries um, in the Cascades? You know, Mm -hmm. people in the Northwest. um, Could we think about what that would look like? Could we get our vitamin C needs met by doing that? Um, It's a really interesting question because I feel like we've gotten used to kind of uh, having this extensive system of you know support for our daily needs and we don't really see the ecological effects of those decisions and of that that system unless you are really aware of it when you're happen to be driving through you know an industrial agriculture zone um so it's kind of an interesting maybe way of looking at things and thinking about intensifying our our uh, production and, and our footprint in, you know, the areas that have already been developed and then moving out into thinking about these larger spaces as like the zone three, zone four in the permaculture um, kind of methodology. Um, what does it look like to manage on a larger scale these kind of perennial systems? How could we do that in a good way? Yeah, because yeah, it just seems like right now we're on the precipice where, you know, we have somewhat runaway land degradation and uh, climates are changing and we don't really we're not really reversing that on on a massive scale it seems like that the problem is still accelerating um and so i'm just really trying to figure out what are these baseline strategies and what are these baseline shifts that we need to make in our perception where we can really turn the tides here and get a clear pathway to the restoration of the of the help and of the of the biosphere of this planet to one that can continue to support humans into the future and and other species as well 
Yeah, I mean, that's where I I just feel like permaculture as a movement has so much to offer because it does have at its core this kind of positivist uh, ideology of people can do good. And I think that um, that's something that's missing even in the kind of conventional environmental movement where it's all about the bad stuff. Like, look at what we're doing. We're fracking and you know, sixth grade extinction, all this on and on and on. There's so much there that people are mourning and, and rightfully so. But, um, you know, permaculture as a framework of ethics and principles really provides some strong uh, ways of kind of moving through that and and holding, finding a way to like hold all of that grief, but turn it into um, something good. And that's something that teaching permaculture courses, I've come across a lot with my students, like many, many of them, this is just an interesting example, um, have come there because they've, they've read like Derek Jensen's work about, um, you know, just how really messed up industrial capitalism is and they're really affected by it and they really see it and they're you know but they come to this course and they want because they want to do something about it and they want to learn how to do things differently and I think really for me instilling that sense in my students and people that I work with that they have the capacity to um, help and not just harm um has been really powerful for in my life to see that transformation happen and to see people gain confidence in um feeling like they can think about themselves differently and act in different ways um and make a difference i think um you know it's starting small but it does it is having effects throughout the world, I think. Yeah. So you talked about how you teach permaculture and, you know, in, in closing, um, how can people get in touch with you or find out more about what you're doing? Get your Um, book. (laughs) Well, the book is available, um, on various sites online. It's available through the publisher, Chelsea Green. Um, it's also on my website, which is, um, www.resilience.com permaculture.com and yeah that's I do sometimes update the blog on that website I'm hoping to do that more often Um, I have a Facebook page for the book where I post updates and events and different interesting information that I run across related to this subject just um, just beyond the war on invasive species you can search it on Facebook um yeah, and other than that, I live in the southern Willamette Valley and teach at Aprovecho uh, occasionally and other other venues, um, which is also up on my website when I have different courses going on. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time out to taking the time out from your family and from your garden to talk to me today. Dow, I really appreciate it. And I've really appreciated continuing 
to talk with you and learn from you over this last decade. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.